0: I'm James Chow, host of The China Current. You're listening to the podcast, the bite-sized edition, where we break down a complex story into a digestible episode. Nancy Yao Masbach, you are the president of the Museum of Chinese in America. What a stunning museum that is. We'll come back and talk a bit about what you can discover inside. But essentially, you're establishing and sharing the immigrant story of Chinese and how that then transferred to the great story, which is, of course, America. What's one story from that timeline that you tend to remember? And is it one of your own, maybe?
1: There are so many stories uh, that the museum shares and tells. And we often say that they're untold stories um, in the making of America. There's one that comes to mind immediately that I, I just, I marvel at this for so many different reasons, and especially folks who know Chinese culture and Chinese medicine might find it particularly interesting. Um, that is the Doc Hay. Doc Ing Hei. Um, so doc is for uh, the local uh, community, uh, thought he was a physician like no other. Uh, so they called him doctor, but it was abbreviated into doc. And his surname was Ing. Um, so also Wu, Linzipang de Wu. Ing, N-G, E-N-G, spelled in many different ways um, in the English language. Um, and his first name is Hei. So he was from southern China. He was a pulselogist and he was blind. Uh, And he, for all intents and purposes, introduced Chinese medicine to the US. And this was in the 1800s. And his medicine shop, Cam Wah Chung, was in a very remote place of Oregon, for all places. And it was in John Day, Oregon, about, even today, eight hours by car from Portland, and probably closer to Boise, Idaho so five hours over some mountains. Um, but in John Day, Oregon, Doc Hay heard about an opportunity uh, to serve a community and that a businessman of Chinese um, ancestry had gone there because at the time the railroad had just been completed and many of the Chinese laborers were moving east. They feared discrimination, they were looking for more employment and they were heading east. On their path east they settled in John Day. So John Day, despite very few people's recognition today, was at one point the third largest Chinatown in the United States.
0: It goes against the grain of thought that Chinese can be takers when in fact they've been givers. Chinese medicine, the treatments that have come from that. Heal people and they don't need to be seen as an alternative to Western medicine. They can very much be complementary. I want to look at another aspect of this. You mentioned Chinatown. Chinatown around the world are seen as ambassadors of Chinese culture. Tourists go there, flock there, they enjoy the food, they love the culture. They especially bring their families there during the holiday times. But It's got to be much more than just about tourism. What's the historical origin of Chinatowns in
1: America? Today, Chinatowns, you think of them as tourist destinations. They're places, unfortunately, where you can buy certain things that, at times, are not necessarily um, authentic goods. Um, So there's a bit of that stereotyping. And there is a trade there where it's um, unfortunate. I think, because there's so much more to Chinatowns. I see Chinatowns all over the world as historic places of great value. Um, if you go to Chinatown, New York, you understand it, um, if you visit the museum, and it gives you the context you need, as almost frozen in time. Um, if you look down Mott Street in Chinatown, in fact, you'll see the Nationalist Chinese Party's flag alongside the U.S. flag and that's not because of um, Taiwanese independence, um you know activists in Chinatown, not at all. That's because the earliest immigrants to that area were actually part of the Kuomintang, Gu- the Nationalist Party pre-1949. So after the Qing Dynasty fell and we saw immigrants in the early part of the 1900s going to the U.S. They settled in these Chinatowns um, if they were part of the quota or they were just connected to home and they had traveled west after building the railroads. Uh, So these Chinatowns were safe havens. They weren't tourist destinations. Um, That's where you could do your business. Um, You could buy the the, the supplies you needed. Uh, You could have some sense of community in a country that discriminated against you.
0: You mentioned the word quota there. That's a very important word. What does it mean in the context in which you placed it? So in
1: 1882, after the Chinese laborers had built much of the infrastructure of the country, the Transcontinental Railroad, and in fact this year we celebrate its 150th anniversary, uh, the sentiment grew in the U.S. that the Chinese would be taking jobs away from others. Um, that fear uh, culminated in the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. This act is actually the only and first legislation against a group of people to enter the country. It wasn't fully repealed until 1965. And between that period of time, it was a quota of 105 individuals could enter. A year. A year.
0: 105 people of Chinese nationality could immigrate to the United States for those 80-something years.
1: And, And it's horrifying to think of, but absolutely. And it was really the early Chinese who are living in America who knew that that was a grave injustice. Um, that they became active in repealing and working and and, and serving as civil rights activists in the early 1960s alongside other marginalized groups of people that actually brought around the Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1965. That act then opened the immigration quota to 20,000 from any country. So can you imagine? Not only was it absurdly difficult to come into the country, you needed to be a skilled laborer. So my father came in as a typist, a Chinese typist.
0: And he was originally Shanghainese.
1: Exactly, and he went through Hong Kong. Um, his uncle was an editor of a Chinese American newspaper in New York. He had, he had gone to the country also under that quota, and he said he needed another Chinese typist. And so my father was able to go to the US under that 105 quota.
0: That's incredible. The, um, the, the picture, though, of um, the 105, there must have been a, a skewed gender element to this.
1: Absolutely. And even then, before the skewed gender component of the 105, you had about, in 1910 in Chinatown, uh, 4,000 Chinese men and approximately 35 Chinese women. Uh, because so many of them were laborers, and no Chinese weren't coming into the country, many of those Chinese never had the opportunity to marry or have any semblance of family life. So they formed associations, and they're quite well known in the American studies vernacular as Chinese bachelor societies. So these bachelor societies were communities where single Chinese men, as they aged, would share tenement space in Chinatowns all over the country.
0: Who did they marry?
1: They didn't marry. They didn't marry, many of them were unmarried. And even when I grew up in the 70s and visited Chinatown, you'd see a lot of older men sitting outside some of these older shops and just sort of blowing the breeze. And I remember walking by and and we'd just call them uncles. You know, you'd repeatedly see the same people if you were doing your shopping on the weekends. And there was just this cohort of men um, and they were just part of the Chinatown infrastructure. It was only later that I put it together that they were bachelor societies.
0: That must be very painful for some people that they were transplanted from one country to another, particularly when you think about the early opportunities to immigrate, which was the first transcontinental railroad that linked the Eastern parts of America with the Pacific coast. And then you had the gold rush, of course, in California that we all know about. But then you were only brought over to function, to work, to give. You were not appreciated. Maybe you were only tolerated for that period of time of productivity. And then you were sent back. Home. There's this uh, ex- extraordinary picture from May 10th, 1869, which you've spoken about in your own videos, which is called the Ceremony of the Last Spike that was taken over in uh, Utah. These men lining um, the first transcontinental railroad or a segment of it, not a single face, Asian face, let alone Chinese face. So they'd done all this work to connect America, and yet you're not included in the photograph
1: that photo was taken indeed on may 10th 150 years ago in promontory uh utah and that was a celebratory uh photograph of uh that conclusion and a wonderful photographer named corky lee has actually i guess righted that wrong in some ways and has gathered descendants of the railroad workers, and and ceremonially taken that photograph in the exact same positioning, um, every that
0: same spot where the that original same spot,
1: right? Um, and I think that gives the dignity and just tries to acknowledge. But beyond that photograph, I think what that photograph represents is the lack of inclusion in the history and contributions of Chinese immigrants and many other immigrant groups who really built the infrastructure um, of of the country. But I will say there were anomalies. At Yale, for instance, there was quite a bit of acceptance of Chinese um, in um, the Northeast, um, and they were scholars. So it wasn't completely, I, I just wonder at that period of time how it may have been quite confusing to see a dominant group of Chinese men, but at the same time, seeing some elite scholars creating more division within the Chinese population in the country overall.
0: It's not just about history because hundreds of miles of the original track is still in service today, especially when you look at the Sierra Nevada mountains in Utah, which we've spoken about in Wyoming as well. Um, When you talk about exclusion, when you talk about identity, when you talk about grappling to find your place in a rapidly transforming society, that reminds me of what we're facing today, 150 years after these men um, linked America. What lessons do you think the unique Chinese experience has to displace people everywhere, wherever they may be?
1: I wish we had worked faster and harder on the content that is the post exclusion act period because the aftermath of an exclusionary act on a group of people is quite severe and massive and in the case of the Chinese who many of them didn't speak English, I think the the, the post-traumatic um, d- components of that are so subtle um, and yet what we do see trending is safer professions, um, a more complex lack of sense of self, if you will, an identity search, a craving um, of really trying to be a whole person when you don't even have the context of your history, and lack of heroes that look like us. How can it be that a group of people are in this country help build it, live in it for 165 years, And yet you cannot think of one American hero that looks like me or you.
0: Let's talk about representation when we think of political representation, when we think of Congress and the Senate, even the White House, the military. Why are there so few Chinese faces? Is it because they don't want to participate?
1: I think the fundamental characteristic of lack of representation by Asian-American groups, not just by Chinese-Americans only, is due to philanthropy. I think culturally, maybe Chinese characteristics, philanthropy is very different. There's a Western form of philanthropy. There's a United States-American form of philanthropy that is, philanthropy is leverage. It's power. It's authority. It's you drop $500 at the door and you enter that town committee fundraiser and you go to 20 or 30 of them, and then you sort of start becoming a common face. And then you perhaps run for the Board of Education. You put yourself on the ticket, and then you do a lot more of those things, but it's a very incremental philanthropic engagement. In my own family, I can speak from that point, I would characterize my family as quite generous. My brother would give me the shirt off his back. My father would give me the last kernel of rice if we only had two kernels. But they have a relative, I don't know if it's a distrust or unfamiliarity with how organizations will use their gifts. So. In the philanthropic world, maybe because of reputational things that have happened in other organizations, they think that perhaps a nonprofit is not run well. Um, So I think in some ways for us to really understand how we might pursue elected office, we need to really first and foremost understand the power of philanthropy. And there are other groups, and I've thought about this and met with many people and, and read many things. For instance, from the Jewish American community um, there is a lot of philanthropy, um, massive philanthropy that occurs among the Jewish communities to support their own organizations, but other organizations as well, and other types of businesses. And I wonder what would be different if we, as Asian Americans, were more active in a philanthropic way to try to make change. Um, and I think serving on boards uh, where change can happen, um, serving in leadership roles, getting noticed, There is a bit of history around not getting noticed in the Asian American history in the United States, and that's because of exclusion. You know, we were told in some ways to keep our heads down, take things that are risk averse, you know, become a doctor, lawyer, and any one of those that basically had a good income, steady, risk aversion, and yet would provide for a good middle class life. I don't know if I've ever heard a peer or someone else say, you should run for office. You should become a political candidate or leader. You should try to change the world or your country. That's never, ever been in a conversation I've had growing up, born and raised in New York City in the United States. Um, So I find that to be quite challenging.
0: Listening to you, though, I was thinking perhaps maybe one day you'll run for political office because of what you do today. You're giving voice and you are advocating for many issues that are universal, that apply to many communities outside of our own Chinese community. And it reminds me of people who you mention and savor like Docking hey, who came, who gave, who shared, who improved along the way. So, Nancy yao thank you very much for sharing all these incredible linkages with us.
1: Thank you. And I would only run if you would be my campaign manager.
0: Absolutely. You've got me now. (laughs) Go to our website, thechinacurrent.com, for more stories and more people.